0: with our series, Can I Trust My Bible? And I wanna talk about something that you're probably familiar with, but I'm gonna look at it maybe a little differently than you have in the past, and that is, is prophecy real or a simple writer's gimmick? And you might wonder, well, how can it be a simple writer's gimmick? Well, I'm gonna help you to understand a little bit what goes through the mind of liberal scholars when they reject the Bible? Because you need to understand what their argument is in order to make your argument better. This proof or this issue of biblical credibility is a fascinating study. If you grew up in the church, this is an overwhelming proof of the truth and credibility of the Bible. If you grew up in the church and you give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, and that's the problem. If you grew up in the church, you probably give the Bible the benefit of the doubt on issues of prophecy. But if you're a skeptic of the Bible, the claims of fulfilled prophecy are almost silly. And you say, well, Paul, how can that be? Thank you for asking that question. All you have to do is to claim a few plausible possibilities to erase this great amount of biblical credibility, and this is how you do it. Prophecies and predictions of future events were not real. They never were real, and I'm talking like a liberal scholar now, okay? They were never real. They were added after events actually took place and they were added to drum up religious devotion to Israel to sort of make her God seem bigger, sort of rally the nation. Say, who believes that? Liberal Christianity believes that. There's a whole, there's a boatload of people, millions of people who believe they can somehow follow Jesus, yet they deny the miraculous nature of biblical prophecy. They would say something like this. Theoretically, a prophecy takes place in 600 B.C. It's fulfilled five years later in 595 B.C. The book is written in 590 B.C. It could all be made up, and you couldn't tell the difference. And you know what? They're right. They're right. To some degree, they're right. Now, I believe those prophecies are absolutely Taking place, and they absolutely were fulfilled afterwards. But liberal scholars are claiming that biblical writers really didn't, you know, eyewitness prophecies and see their fulfillment. They saw events, they made up the prophecies, and it drummed up support for Israel's God. As offensive as that may be, it is the narrative that you have to fight against in conversations about this issue. And so that's on us to know how to do it little bit of an unfair situation, but it is on us to try to figure out how to do that. Because if you can authenticate prophecy, if you can prove that things were predicted and then happened like God said they would, wow, that is a proof of God just about like none other. Because nobody has a good record of predicting the future right? I mean, it's impossible. Think about this. It's not like we don't try to predict the future. The automobile is only a novelty, a fad, to Henry Ford's lawyer telling him not to invest in it from a banker. Just a fad. In a 1904 debate between a brain specialist and a doctor about the dangers of drivers going too fast, here's a quote, an auto going 80 miles an hour is running without the guidance of the brain. Now, I actually saw this guy last week driving on Highway 2, and and I would agree that in many cases that's that's the case. Electricity is just a fad. J.P. Morgan of J.P. Morgan Bank hired Thomas Edison to wire his house with electricity, one of the first houses to ever be wired. His dad said that J.P. financed. His dad said that. His dad said that. Electricity is a fad. J.P. ended up financing G.E., General Electric nailed it. It's probably why J.P. Morgan became what J.P. Morgan is. In 1922, a man named F.F. Smith, friend of Winston Churchill, foresaw medical advances that would allow 150-year lifespans. Hey, I'm all for that, right? I'm only a third there, fourth there. This is what he said. How will youths of 20... Be able to compete in the professions against vigorous men still in their prime at 120. I like that. I like that guy. Hasn't happened. Not going to happen. Telephones will never catch on. The iPhone won't get significant market share. That was stated by the CEO of Microsoft 15 years ago. The iPhone. Yeah, nobody's going to buy that. TV won't be a big thing. The world will end in Y2K. I remember that one well. People won't shop online. Tanks won't replace cavalry in war. Nobody will use home computers. No online database will replace newspapers. The internet will collapse. Wired Magazine in 1997 to Apple. Admit it, you're out of the hardware game. The Titanic is unsinkable. Flying is impossible. Rockets will never leave our atmosphere. The Beatles have no future. There's a worldwide market for five computers, stated by Thomas Watson, the CEO of IBM, in 1943. Everything that can be invented has already been invented. The commissioner of the United States Patent Office in 1899. Everything that can be invented has already been invented. It's impossible to predict the future. All kinds of people try it and we're horrible at it. I just quoted to you some of the smartest people of my lifetime getting major market trends wrong in areas where they are absolute specialists. Predicting the future is impossible, unless you see it or control it. All right, think about that. It's impossible unless you literally can see into the future or unless you control it. So is fulfilled prophecy simply a writer's gimmick? After the fact, the writers said, well, there was a prediction and there was an event. Liberals would say there's no way to prove it and it's a leap of faith to believe it. But I want to talk about that today because I believe we can prove several of these prophecies and we're going to focus on that and talk about the implications. First, let's talk about what a fulfilled prophecy actually is. Fulfilled prophecy, if truly predicted in advance, is a miracle of divine foresight, either God sees it or causation, or he causes it or both. How do we define prophecy? Well, if you look up the word prophecy online or in a dictionary, simple definition, a prediction. All right, we look at it a little bit more than that, tends to be associated with religion and so on. But a prophecy is basically a prediction. But for a prediction with great specificity to come true, either God has to see the future, not necessarily cause it, but just know it, see it, operate outside of time, some would say, and he just sees it. Or he needs to cause it. And some of you would probably say that. Some of you would say both. Most prophecies are going to fall into the cause category because in most cases, God is prophesying things that only he can bring to pass. Sometimes God is predicting or prophesying a miracle. We see that in many cases in the Bible. Sometimes God is predicting or prophesying a non-miracle, just maybe uh, the fall of a city or a nation. He sees the future. Uh, The miracle might be the parting of the Red Sea or the resurrection. Those were predictions. So sometimes they're sort of natural events. Sometimes they're supernatural events. But for God to either see them or cause them is supernatural. Either way, there's a miraculous nature to fulfilled prophecy. I don't know that I would call them miracles in the technical sense. A miracle in the technical sense is an overturning of the laws of nature. But we'd all agree that there's a miraculous side to a fulfilled prophecy. And I would say that God views it that way as well. He views it as something that testifies to his existence. And I'm going to give you a couple passages of Scripture where God actually says that. Isaiah 41. Present your case, the Lord says. I think he's sort of, God is sort of being a little sarcastic. I love that God is sarcastic. It makes me feel so better about my own sense of humor. I think God here is sort of mocking idols. All right, Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were. In other words, what have you idols produced? That we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Can the idols sort of predict the future? Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are gods. This is the true God mocking false gods and saying, bring it, baby. All right, that's in the Hebrew. Bring it, baby. All right, to Baal and Ashtoreth. Bring it. Show us what you can do. Another passage, Isaiah 48, 5. Therefore I declare them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. In other words, God is saying, I've predicted things. They've come to pass. You know it was me. So that you couldn't say your idols are sort of in charge of the world and the universe and your lives. See, God is claiming that when something is prophesied and it comes to pass, only a God could do that. And he's saying here, he's the only really true God. God knows that telling the future is in his realm. It's in his wheelhouse only. And he actually said in those passages, if another God can pull it off, bring it, and then we'll know that that's a true God as well to tell the future is to see it or to cause it. Those are divine gifts. Anything else is just guessing. Vast generalizations, you know, sort of fortune cookie wisdom. You know, when I get Chinese food, I'm always ordering the, opening the fortune cookies and if somebody's with me, I'll say, I'm gonna see what God's will is for my life and I open it up. And You know, they're just vastly generalized, you know? And, and we all know that. You just you just make these really, really wide, broad statements so that they're true for ninety percent of us most of the time, you know? God isn't like that. Prophecy's like that, not like that. This predictive element of the Bible is not simply in a few isolated passages either. Now, I'm gonna give you some statistics that just sort of shocked me. And, and I was actually surprised at the volume of prophetic material in the Bible. John Ankerberg and John Weldon wrote a book, Ready with an Answer, I'm gonna read a few things from it later, and in it they, they give us these statistics about prophetic material in the Bible. They say there are over 600 references to the word prophet or prophecy in the Bible, just sort of, sort of introducing a passage, the prophet, this guy, or this is a prophecy, They're just that word. Get this, four of 66 books in your Bible are without prophecy, only four. Third John, which is just a tiny little book, a few paragraphs, Philemon, same thing, half a page, Ruth, a story, no prophecy in it, and Song of Solomon. And I think I made my views clear on Song of Solomon last night. The only, or last week, I should say. Not last night, that was a slip there. Okay. I'm not sure what to say after that. All right, sorry, dear. Only four of 66 books do not have prophetic elements. Get this. About 27% of the Bible is prophetic, 27%, that's an awesome amount of material. Think of how much of the Old Testament, historical narratives, things like that. Still, 27% of the Bible is looking towards the future and predicting quite specific things in it. Most of it's already fulfilled. So let's skip the liberal arguments for a second. If you really believe in prophecy in the Bible and your conservative view of God's word, 27% was predicting the future, and most of it's already taken place. Wow! That's unbelievable. In the Old Testament, 23,210 verses exist. 6,641 are prophecy looking to the future. 6,641 out of 23,210, that's 28.5%. In the New Testament, There's 7,914 verses, 1,711 are prophetic. 1,711 of almost 8,000, that's 21.5%. About 1,800 of the 8,352 verses in the Bible are are about Jesus coming again. 1,800 verses are about Jesus coming again. So basically, the bottom line is, just think of it this way, a quarter of the Bible is prophetic, most of it's already been fulfilled. All right, so prophecies are miracles of divine foresight or causation. And your other theological biases are probably gonna influence which one you view that to be. Not important for today. Second, while all biblical prophecies may be true, and I believe they are, they are not equally provable. All right, so when I'm talking to you about liberal Christianity and I'm sort of telling you what they believe, I don't believe that at all. I'm about as conservative as they come. I'm almost as conservative as God. My mother was more conservative than God. I'm almost as conservative. But not everything is equally provable, all right? So you have prophecies that were predicted and fulfilled and I'm gonna explain to you in a few minutes why the manuscript evidence is inconclusive to prove them then you have prophecies that are predicted and are not yet fulfilled, and then you have prophecies that were predicted, fulfilled, and the manuscript dating and evidence is clearer, clearly prior to fulfillment, like we can prove them today to anybody in a good argument or a good debate, all right? So, for just a moment, I want you to embrace your skeptic, okay? For just a moment, I want you to be sort of a liberal Christian, you don't believe the Bible, You don't believe what Pastor Paul says is any credibility, Uh, not that those two are necessarily the same, but anyway, you're gonna embrace your liberal for a second here, embrace your doubt. We're gonna look at category A examples. They're predicted, they're filled, but the manuscript evidence would be inconclusive. And and you believe them, I guarantee you, you believe them, but I'm just gonna talk like a skeptic for a few minutes here, okay? Genesis six, a global flood. It was predicted, it was fulfilled, but the earliest record you have of that flood in manuscript evidence is about 200 B.C., all right? So that's a problem. Genesis 12 through 20, the promise of Isaac. It was predicted. The whole Old Testament's built on that promise coming true. It was fulfilled, and you know, but the oldest manuscript evidence for it's about 200 B.C. Genesis 15, 13, 400 years of slavery is predicted for Abraham's children and Uh, in his descendants. It happened, they were in Egypt, we know it, but the oldest manuscript evidence is 200 B.C., All the promises of deliverance and provision in the book of Exodus, the manna coming every morning, Joshua, the divine destruction of Jericho, and other battles that were won because God was with His people. Then all the battle predictions in the prophets, the prophets talking about falls of cities and kings and nations, the succession of world empires—all that stuff is predicted. It's fulfilled, but the oldest manuscripts come from 200 BC. All right, so. Let me tell you about the manuscript evidence for Old Testament prophecies, all right? Stay with me here, all right? So here's the deal. Before 1947, the oldest manuscripts that we had of the stories that you believe from the Old Testament, the oldest manuscripts you had were dated about 800 to 1,000 A.D. All right, so they are about, you know, 1,000, 1,200 years old. Now, that's not when they were written. We believe there were eyewitness accounts to go back to the actual events that were written down, but they kept getting copied and copied and copied, and throughout history, the oldest manuscripts we still had that we had found were from 800 to 1,000 A.D., not B.C., so thousands of years after the events. Then in 1947, uh, somebody started discovering what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they found a bunch of old scrolls, written in Hebrew, in caves in the Middle East. And then they kept looking, and for a number of years, they kept finding more caves, and from 1947 to 1956, 11 caves were entered that had ancient scrolls, virtually your whole Old Testament, by the way, with very few exceptions. So in other words, the prophecies of the Old Testament pretty much all exist in the dead sea scrolls which were found between 1947 and 1956 over that 9 or 10 year period and those scrolls all date 2nd century BC all right so prophecies existed going all the way back to the time of Noah and Abraham etc but the oldest copies we have not the first time they're written down but the oldest copies we have let's say 180, 200 B.C. would be the dating, all right? So, that's a big deal, because that means anything that's fulfilled after that become the provable prophecies. All right? Category B examples. All prophecies about the future reign of God and Messiah on Earth, you know, they're predicted, but they're not yet fulfilled. They're future, so they become unprovable. So I want to look at the category C examples. These are prophecies found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date 200 B.C., that actually are fulfilled in the time of Jesus, all right? So they're fulfilled a couple hundred years after the manuscripts are dated. They're prophesied much earlier. They're dated 200 B.C., though. They're fulfilled in Jesus' time, And if they are, we know they're supernatural. So i want to just walk you through two of them. One of them, I've actually shown you before, but we're gonna review it. Another one we haven't talked about. Daniel chapter nine, verse 24. This is one of the key Old Testament passages. I mean, it is one of the the greatest prophetic fulfillments you will find in the history of the Bible because it actually gives a timeline from Daniel speaking and an event that occurred soon after that to when Jesus was publicly announced as Messiah. This is like fascinating stuff. 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So he's talking about the Jews and Jerusalem. And then you notice the, this is some big end time stuff, to finish transgression, like to make an end of sin. Well, What would that be talking about? Well, possibly like the crucifixion? where sin is paid for, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, that would be the reign of Jesus in the future on earth, which is predicted throughout the whole Bible, to seal up vision and prophecy, everything to take place that's prophesied, and to anoint the most holy place for Jerusalem to be restored. Daniel lived, Daniel said this, around the 6th century B.C., so the 500s B.C., He had several visions of future world kingdoms. Uh, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, uh, Greece, Rome. He had visions of these successive world kingdoms and many of his visions are about that. This vision is narrower. Interestingly, in Daniel, the visions about the broader world kingdoms are also in Aramaic because that was sort of the language of the world at that time. This vision is actually in Hebrew because it was specifically for the Jews. So this is about Jerusalem and the Jews, their future. They're in captivity right now, so he's trying to give them hope for their future. He sees their future. It also speaks to a broader new world order where sin will no longer rule the earth. Well, the cross will deal with it. Christ's righteous standards will be established on earth. The end of biblical predictions will culminate with Messiah's reign. The temple will be reestablished. All of these things are sort of in that. Those are the themes there. Now today, you would agree, that's partially fulfilled. What's interesting is he said, 70 weeks. Now that's a very, very, I, I don't like criticizing Bible translations because it kind of erodes our confidence in, in the Bible a little bit. But we all know we're translating from Hebrew or Greek to English. But weeks is an extremely unfortunate translation. 77s would be a better translation because as soon as you say 70 weeks, you're thinking a week timeline instead of sevens. The Hebrew is 77s. Virtually all conservative scholars believe that this is 490 years. If you're a liberal scholar, you just say, Oh, they're just units of time, but we have no idea what, which means the prophecy means nothing. But if it's years and this is accurate, Wow, seventy-sevens. all conservatives believe pretty much it's 490 years of prophesied future beginning at some time in the fifth century B.C. The 490, even in Daniel's words here in the next couple of verses, are broken into a set of seven sevens, or 49 years, then 62 sevens, or 434 years, and then one seven, or seven years. And key events are described as these time intervals come to pass. In a few minutes, I'm going to read through the passage with you. But first, I'm just going to say what it says. It begins with, these 77s. begins with a decree to restore Jerusalem. All right? Jerusalem has been destroyed, basically. The Jews are in captivity. There will be a decree from a foreign ruler that they can go back and restore their capital city. The first fulfillment will be after seven sevens, or 49 years. The second fulfillment, Messiah will arrive after the next 62 sevens, or another 434 years. The third fulfillment will have to do with sort of the end times there will be a battle between Messiah and the Antichrist. That will take seven more years. So the question is, does the math work? This 490 years. All right, I wanna show you something here because this is exciting. You don't, have to, you don't have to act excited, but it would help. All right, because this is big stuff. This is big stuff. There were multiple decrees by foreign rulers to go back and restore Jerusalem. There were three, I believe. The one that I'm looking at here is in the book of Ezra. 457 BC, uh, there was a definite decree from that king to go back, give permission to the Jewish people to go back and restore Jerusalem. So we're gonna use that one. That's the one where the timeline makes perfect sense. So after the first set of sevens, seven sevens, or 49 years, Jerusalem's walls, streets, and moats are actually rebuilt, just like the verse I read said they would be. Then you go 434 years after that, the next 62 sevens, which he states, you get to 26 AD. Well, that's a suspicious date. And then because the math won't work unless since there is no zero year zero, you go from one B C to one AD, you add one more year, you get to twenty seven AD. You know what happened in twenty seven AD? Jesus is baptized and presented as Messiah. So sixty nine weeks into Daniel's prophecy, just like he said, the Messiah will come. Now you could say, well, it should be at his birth. Yeah at the presentation of his ministry makes sense, and 483 years to the year works with that. Conservative scholars are so excited about this they can hardly contain themselves, and I see that look in your eyes as well. Coincidence? I don't think so. And the last week mentioned in Daniel is future. There's a break there. Now, I want you to grab the Bible in front of you, so just humor me. Grab the Bible in front of you. I want you to turn to page 637, and I'm going to read through this with you. So just grab it so you understand this. 637, right-hand column. I hear those pages turning. I want to hear a couple more. All right, 637. I'm going to read this, and I'm just going to comment on the way through. This is big stuff. Verse 24 in the right-hand column. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, you, the temple will be restored, Jesus will rule. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 457 B.C., until Messiah the Prince... 27 AD, there'll be seven weeks, 49 years plus 62 weeks, 434 years. It'll be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So that's the first seven weeks. Jerusalem was rebuilt, moats, walls, bridges, etc. Then after the 62 weeks, so after another 434 years, the Messiah will be cut off. So Messiah's coming. He's not saying at 62 weeks. He appears at 62 weeks. After that, things aren't gonna work out the way you're hoping. God is literally telling us that when Jesus comes, it's not gonna end as we would think. In this passage, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's talking about the rejection of Jesus. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be a war, desolations are determined. Now he's looking into the future, to the end time battle. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now we're talking about the enemy of Jesus, the Antichrist, who's mentioned elsewhere in this book. In the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And that's talking about Jesus' victory. I realize that's not that easy to see necessarily, but the first 483 years are to the day, basically, or the year. That's pretty fantastic math. Coming from God in the fifth century. And we have that manuscript dated 200 BC in the Dead Sea Scrolls before it takes place. All right, so that was probably a little intense for some of you. I'll make one, I'll, we'll do an easier one, okay? Because I see some of you are looking at me like, mm. all right, I get that look a lot. All right, Isaiah 53 page 524, okay? Turn to 524. Make it as easy as possible. Page number, 524. Isaiah 53. All right, nobody knows what to do with this one. We have Isaiah 53, 200 BC as well. It's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It happened before Jesus. I want you to hear this. Listen to the themes. That Messiah would not be accepted or believed... He would have a substitutionary suffering for humanity. At his trial, he wouldn't defend himself. He'd be condemned. He'd be executed. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he would be the bringer of justification to all. Okay? That's written six or seven centuries before Jesus' existence on earth. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, there be nothing special about Messiah. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him, we rejected him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, he's going to suffer, we're going to assume that's just God's judgment on him. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him and by his scourging we are healed. Interesting use of the term scourging when I don't know that crucifixion had even been invented at this point in history when this is written, and yet this looks at crucifixion. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, substitutionary atonement. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he's taken away. So he doesn't defend himself at his trial and he is judged. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom, does the, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. So he's condemned with other criminals and he's buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering for us, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Some would say that's a reference to the resurrection. He'll prolong his days. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, what do you think that's talking about? Written in the 5th or 6th century, manuscript evidence to the 2nd century, this is so hard for Orthodox Jews to deal with. My understanding is when Isaiah's read in synagogues, they skip over this chapter. They don't know what to do with it. And I love the Jewish people. We inherit the Old Testament from them. I think I'm 132nd Jewish. Not enough to really be persecuted, but just to claim it. They don't know what to do with this. They used to say this is about about the nation of Israel, not Messiah, but it's clearly about Messiah. And in the Old Testament, the rabbis absolutely believed it was about Messiah. And this was so confusing, a Messiah dying, that they thought there must be two Messiahs. They never could envision a Messiah dying and rising again, so there must be two Messiahs. Now, I could read a whole bunch of other prophecies about Jesus, and I've got the book here to do it, but it's 16 to 12, and I'm not going to do it. I'm so proud of myself for that little moment of self-control. All right. These passages are fulfilled after the manuscript evidence. Those are the ones we can really prove. But that leads me to the third point which I think you'll agree with because you're a friendly crowd to the Bible. And that is if some can be absolutely proven, the benefit of the doubt naturally moves to those that cannot, all right? So I showed you a couple passages that are shockingly evidence that they're fulfilled in the life of Jesus and we have manuscripts 200 years before his life. Well then, maybe it's all true, all right? 25% of the Bible is in the prophetic mode, a mode with a terrible track record unless you are God. Prophecy is religious suicide. If you wanna be a false god or a false prophet, you know, knock yourself out. But you do not wanna predict the future unless you can guarantee it's gonna happen. It's religious suicide, you look like a fool. Yet 25% of the Bible is religious suicide and it comes true over and over and over. Most has come true already. We have eyewitness accounts that go back thousands and thousands of years that have been recorded and then written over and over and over and over again. And the fact that we have manuscripts from the second century B.C. doesn't mean there weren't manuscripts all the way back to Moses. Those are just the oldest ones we have. For most of 3,400 years, since the time of Moses, the world believed that the books of the Bible were written by the people whose names are on them, that they are eyewitness accounts, and they are credible. They saw prophecy and fulfillment, and they wrote it down. They saw the activity of the one who can do that, the one alone who can do that, which is why they believed in that God. And if we can prove some of these prophecies take place in Jesus with manuscript evidence a couple hundred years before his life, why don't we just, like we did through most of history until about the 19th century and a few naughty German theologians came along, why don't we just believe it like the Western world did until the late 1800s, before liberal Christianity was born? Because through most of church history, this was viewed as history and it was viewed as God's word finally, words you love to hear from me. Finally, if prophecy is merely religious propaganda, imagine how many have lied to lead us towards truth. I want you to think about that. Think of what the Bible is about. Think what the Bible presents about God and what we're supposed to have in our lives. And if prophecy is really what the liberals say, never really was predicted and then happened. They just made that up to prop up an Old Testament God called Jehovah. If that's really true, isn't it amazing how the Bible is trying to lead us towards moral purity and a belief in absolute truth and in Jesus who called himself the way, the truth and the life. The moral center of the God of the Bible is holiness, perfect ethical character. The son of God called himself the truth. Doesn't it seem odd to you? Because it's odd to me that the process of inspiring faith in the God of the Bible would be this, that over 1600 years, through 40 different authors, plus or minus, that put together this book, With a unified singular message about God and salvation through countless actors, that their whole plan over 1600 years is to lie in order to create faith in a holy God. I find that inconceivable. I don't get it. We should be watching the NFL right now if that's the case. I don't get it. Instead, I believe that you have in your hands an eyewitness record of salvation history, going back to the earliest times, the best historical record of the ancient world up against all other history books as well, proven thousands of times, not hundreds of times, thousands of times through archaeological digs around the world. You have the best manuscript agreement, the best manuscript accuracy, the best manuscript unity of any ancient documents in your Bible compared to all other historical records. There's nothing close. We talked about that about a month ago. You have documents that claim internally the influence of God, that he was a part of the process of their inception. You have documents that demonstrate that God's predictions, they demonstrate God's predictions and their fulfillment so that we would see it as his story with humanity. His story. Not just history, but his story. There is nothing nothing like this nothing like this and what god wants you to do is make a decision on that cuz this isn't an academic exercise ooh man, paul made a couple good points maybe maybe there's something in here that's worthwhile no if 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 i'm accurate If we're accurate about this, then then it's all true. And God wants you. He wants your life. He wants your devotion. He wants your future. He wants you to put it in his hands. He wants to solve your sin problem. He wants to pay for it. He wants you with him forever in heaven. All of this is so he can have you. Have you given yourself back to him? I know this is a sermon about the Bible, but it all points to whether Jesus has credibility, whether whether our whole faith is real, and if it is, then the story of what Jesus came to do is real as well, which means he came to, as we read in Isaiah, written 600 years before it happened, came to pay the penalty for your sin, to save you from your sins, to give you a life, to give you a future to give you heaven. And if you've never done that before, I want to encourage you today to make that stand. And to say, you know what? I believe this is true. And if it's true, I want to be a Jesus follower. If you've never done that, I'm just going to put a prayer of faith on the screen, and I would just encourage you to walk through this in your own heart as I pray it out loud. Just to make a a stand a point in time in your life where you say i'm i'm going to follow jesus jesus i believe i believe that the story of god in the bible is true i believe the story prophesied about your sacrifice is true i believe you are the son of god i believe that you died to pay the penalty for my sins I ask you to come into my life as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing magical about those words except they signal a movement of faith in your heart. And that is significant. If you prayed that prayer, I just encourage you to let somebody know, let somebody on the church staff or an elder know. And that's the beginning of a new life when we come to a point of faith to follow the Jesus of the Bible. I'm going to pray, and as I do, we're going to have the worship team come up for our our final song. God, we thank you for your word. I thank you that there is so much credibility. There is so much manuscript evidence. That's not necessarily a miracle. It's just I'm grateful for it that we found so much around the world, thousands and thousands and thousands of ancient documents which verify that this stuff really happened, which means you are real and true as we read in your word. Give us confidence in this world which isn't even aware of what we're talking about, a world that if they knew it, I'm not so sure it would ever be public because when we're really honest and I've read honest atheists, they would say they don't want to believe it's true. They don't want it to be true because it has implications. But we believe it is true and it has implications that we need to follow you and love you and give you our lives. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.